Our lesson this morning is from the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, starting with the 14th verse. Hear these words. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were with them in the boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boats with the hired men and followed him. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Yeah, I marked the wrong scripture passage, and I didn't read the 12th and 13th verse of that, and the choir didn't catch me. Did you catch me? You caught me. I was supposed to have read, and the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he's with the wild beast, and the angels waited on him. I was supposed to have read that part too. That's what happens when you're in the Gospel of Mark. It seems like every Sunday since the beginning of the year, we've been in the Gospel of Mark in the first chapter. So that was what I was supposed to have read, and I didn't. In his book, Learned Optimism, Martin Stiegelman says that all of us have an explanatory style. It accounts for life's experiences. Explanatory style is the manner in which you habitually explain to yourself why events happen. For example, you're in a restaurant You're supposed to be on a date, and you have told him or her to meet you at 7 o'clock. 45 minutes later, at 7.45, your date is a no-show. At some point, you will explain to yourself or need to explain to yourself why. You might think They stood me up, and that causes you to be mad. You might jump to a conclusion. She doesn't love me anymore, causing you to be sad. He was in an accident, causing anxiety. She's working overtime so she can pay for the meal, causing you to feel grateful, naive but grateful. You might think she's with another man, causing you to feel jealous. Or you might think this gives me a perfect excuse to break up with him, causing you to feel relieved. Same situation, very different explanations. You can't control your experiences, but you can control your explanation of the experiences. Let's take an Old Testament story of a young man 
whose brothers are jealous of him and his relationship with his father. So one day they're out in the field and they capture poor old Joseph. They bind him and they throw him down into a pit. And along come the Ishmaelites or some otherites, we're told, and they capture him and they sell him off into slavery in Egypt. Meanwhile, the brothers go back and they bring the technicolor dream coat and they said, Dad, some animal got him. He's not here. And Joseph finds himself enslaved. And Joseph finds himself enslaved and sold to a man named Potiphar who had a wife who noticed Joseph and one day said to Joseph, hey, big boy, come here. That's what the Hebrew says in that passage of Scripture. And Joseph fled, and she grabbed his robe and said, this young man tried to besmirch me. And Potiphar had no, no recourse but to throw Joseph into prison. For 13 years, he would languish there until finally one night, he had a dream. And Joseph finds himself prime minister of Egypt. Years later, facing his brothers, the ones that had thrown him into the pit originally, the ones who had caused all the mayhem in his life, as Joseph is reflecting to them, said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That was Joseph's explanatory style as he faced his brothers and reflected on what they did to him. Your explanatory style will inform how you act, how you behave, how you respond to life's circumstances. And we're confronted this morning with one of those Greek words that just drives Greek students crazy. And it is up there in the 13th verse of Mark 1. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. There's the word I want you to have, tempted, parazo, if you want it in Greek. James handles it another way. Jesus was in the wilderness to be tempted. Here's what James says. My brothers and sisters, when you face trials, there's the same Greek word. When you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing, there's the same word, of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so you may be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Another place it appears is over in 1 Peter. I'll start with 1 Peter, first chapter, the sixth verse. In this you rejoice even now for a little while you have to suffer various trials. There's the word again. So that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, 
is tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. How in the world do you tell how to, you're supposed to translate this Greek word pirazo? If any of you have been in a foreign language class, you know when you ask a question like that, the professor or the teacher is going to answer it. Context. What is the context that the word appears? And I want to say that is important, but I also want to say that your explanatory style will help you translate this verb. Are you being tempted? Are you being tested? And are the trials that come into your life really temptations or testing? How do I know? Well, how do you live it? What is your response? How do you walk in light of what you're going through? So Mark does, as the other, other gospel writers do, captures the beginning of the ministry of Jesus with the baptism of John in the Jordan, and Jesus is immediately tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by the devil. Mark just gives us that. We know from Luke and Matthew of the three historic temptations of Jesus. The first one, Lord, if you are the Son of God, and I want to say in Matthew that the word can be translated better since you are the Son of God, that the temptations of Jesus are much more subtle than trying to get Jesus to sin. Jesus has been fasting, and these little stones in Palestine look like pierogies. I'm trying to find out how many of you have been around New Orleans. They look like wonderful little loaves of bread. Lord, I know you're hungry, and since you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Where's the sin in that? Aha. Uh -huh. You're hungry, Lord. Take care of your physical needs. And that becomes one of the great temptations, not only that Christ faced in his ministry, but that the church has faced it through its history. Take care of the physical needs of people. Feed them if they're hungry. Clothe them if they're naked. House them if they're homeless. Do all this to take care of their physical needs so that you never get around to talk about their spiritual needs. Jesus said to the devil, you don't live by bread alone. Live by every word that flows from the mouth of God. Then the devil takes Jesus up onto the pinnacle of the temple high above the Kidron Valley and says, Lord, jump off. Because Scripture says he's given it angels charge of you and you will not even dash your heel upon a rock. That would have been quite a sight for those watching. This man standing at the pinnacle of the temple about 180 feet above the floor of the valley jumps off and as he's falling, a covey of angels sweep down, catch him, stand him on his feet. The crowds would have massed. 
They would have come to see what Jesus was going to do next. And in fact, Mark tells us early on, that's why the crowds are pressing in against the doors. They want to see what Jesus is going to do next. Who will he heal next? What unclean spirit will he drive out next? What words will he speak next? And Jesus said, don't put the Lord your God to the test. The church gets caught up in that one too. Wow, people. You got to wow them with the latest technology. You got to wow them with how you're handling the latest movement in the church. You've got to stay in front of the curb to wow the people. You've got to keep them interested. You've got to keep them entertained. You've got to keep them encouraged. You got to keep them coming. And the third temptation, according to both Matthew and Luke, is a subtle one. The devil says, Jesus, nobody's going to know it. Just bow down to me. Nobody will see it. I won't tell. And if you just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, which were his anyway. That third temptation, Jesus, take a shortcut. As a matter of fact, as you keep reading the Gospels, you understand that the question Jesus faced in the wilderness in the temptation was, what kind of Messiah are you going to be? What will be your explanatory style for your ministry? Will you live in faithfulness to the Word of God? Will you live into the faithfulness to the call that is yours? Will you be faithful to what God has told you to do? And you see Jesus being constantly bombarded with the temptation to do something else. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's going on is Jesus is facing the ultimate temptation to stay off of the cross. Because that's what the devil wanted, to keep Christ away from Calvary. To keep Christ the kind of Messiah that took care of physical needs or wowed the people but not a Messiah who would save, not the great shepherd of the sheep who would seek the one lost lamb. Turn Jesus into something else. This season of Lent we're in is a season of context. How do you translate the word? Is it temptation? Is it testing? Is it trial? And Lent invites us into the harder parts of our faith. Lent invites us to run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Lent involves, invites us to strain for the finish line. Lent invites us to fight the good fight. Lent invites us to endure the cross, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Lent invites us to another explanatory style. The hard parts, the tough parts of Scripture. The tenacious love of God that is always with us, the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that gives us all the pleroma, the fullness of God. What would your explanatory style be if you lived with all the fullness of God dwelling in you? 
that you knew that God was with you no matter what, that God would take care of you no matter what, that God would be with you no matter what. Lent invites us to the nails, to the hard part of our faith. This week, while I was cruising, I was reading Jeremiah. Everybody needs to go on a cruise and read Jeremiah. Yeah, it's a lot better than reading the book of Jonah, I might add. And Jeremiah starts with, with God calling Jeremiah, and Jeremiah responds and says, Oh, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a boy, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, to plant. And God continues, And I, for my part, have made you today a fortified city of iron pillar, a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its princes, its priests, its people, the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. And when you read the book of Jeremiah, you find out that's exactly what happened. The temple cultus was against him. The people were only listening to him half the time. The kings wouldn't pay attention to him. Even Josiah and his great reform didn't take it far enough. Because Josiah's kid takes over and Josiah's kid just throws the whole reform out. But Jeremiah lived out of an explanatory style that says, God is with me no matter what. And he faced persecution, and he faced humiliation, and he faced crowds deriding him with a tenacious faith that God was with him. You know, when bad things happen to us, we try to figure it out. Why did this happen? What am I supposed to learn? How can I endure as we ought? But it seems to me that since we don't know if it's a temptation or a trial or a testing, because it's all the same Greek verb, that maybe we ought to go against and come against and live with another explanatory style. Couldn't get out of the Old Testament this week. 
One of my heroes in scripture is a fellow found in 2 Samuel. His name is Benaiah. It says that Benaiah was a doer of great deeds. And 2 Samuel 23, 20, yeah, verse 20 says, Benaiah also went down in the pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now that's an explanatory style right there. Benaiah went down in a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. First of all, in the state of Louisiana, the snow would have stopped us right there. We would have known, well, is there school today? What's open? Most of us, if there was a lion in a pit, we would call wildlife and fisheries. And this being Louisiana, we would want to know if we could get a tag to shoot the lion. Benaiah went down in a pit on a snowy day and he killed a lion. Maybe when those temptations come, when those tests arrive, when those trials find themselves into our lives, we need to face them a little bit more in the spirit of Benaiah. We need to go toe to toe in the name of the Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the confidence that God is with us. Because too often what we do is we just wring our hands and, oh Lord, there's a lion in the pit. And being good Methodists, the other thing we do, let's form a committee. Jump down in the pit and kill the lion. If that's what God tells you to do. And we know that Benaiah is groomed that way because Benaiah has already gone down and killed two sons of Ariel of Moab. And the funny thing about that is the Hebrew word Ariel can also be translated lion. So one translation says that Benaiah went down and killed two lion cubs in Moab. He also struck down an Egyptian that was seven feet tall. And you wonder why am I talking about Benaiah? Because his name means God built. Benaiah lived out of the script that God had built him, that God had constructed him. And David is thumbing through resumes one day looking for a leader of his palace guards and he comes to a resume and it says, majored in security at the University of Jerusalem. And David says, nope, don't want that one. Got another one, palace guard intern for two years. I don't think so. Looked at another resume and said, brings security for the temple. Nah, don't want that one. Gets to this resume and says, killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And David says, he's hired. And Benaiah, because of his tenacity, Benaiah, because he wasn't afraid to face lions or any other heartache, Benaiah is one of those characters like you and me. A character that moves the narration of God's story along. Because Benaiah puts down a rebellion at the end of David's life. And because David was so important to him, 
make sure that Solomon was enthroned as the king of Israel. You didn't know that about Benaiah, did you? What's God calling you to do? Who has God declared you to be? Scripture says you're sons and daughters of the Almighty, that you're joint heirs with Christ. Part of the temptation and part of the testing that we face is how will we live that out in our lives? Will we live as sons and daughters of the King? Or will we develop an explanatory style that says, that's not for me, that's for someone else. Lent is about preparing you to meet the resurrected Christ. The one who said, all authority has been given me. Therefore, you go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then Jesus said, and I am with you even to the end of the age. He is, you know, with us still. Is your explanatory style to live with that presence? Or do you tell yourself another story? Would you stand and pray with me? We pray, O God, that your presence would be known among us, that we would hear clearly your call to discipleship, that we would hear clearly your invitation to follow you. And having heard, we would resolve to do just that. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.